The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Do you have a brief log line of the film? I do, Ken. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. This is not a documentary about the making of Midnight Cowboy. It is about a humane and groundbreaking masterpiece and the flawed but gifted people who made it. It is about a troubled era of cultural ferment, social and political change, about broken dreams and strivers then and now. It is about an era that made a movie and a movie that made an era. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Simon Kilmurray and Susan Margolin, the producers of Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy. Desperate Souls had its world premiere at the 2022 Venice International Film Festival and went on to screen at the Telluride Film Festival, Hamptons, and Palm Springs International Film Festivals. The film has recently been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. Simon Kilmurray is a primetime Emmy winner, the former executive director and executive producer of American Documentary slash POV, and the former executive director of the International Documentary Association. Susan Margolin is former co-president of Cinedime Entertainment Group and launched DocuRama, where she championed more than 400 documentaries. She's gone on to produce a number of films, including Nancy Bursky's documentary, The Rape of Racy Taylor. It was great to talk to Susan and Simon about the film and to get their perspectives as the producers. But of course, our conversation was tinged with sadness because the film's director, Nancy Bursky, died in August of this year. But I think that this conversation ended up being a celebration of the film that they made together and of Nancy as a person and as an incredible force in documentary, not only as a filmmaker, but as founder of the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival in Durham, North Carolina, and as someone who had a major impact on so many filmmakers and people within the documentary field. In our conversation, we talk about what's special about Midnight Cowboy, why it stands the test of time, and how it connected with and impacted the culture and art of its time. We also talk about the creative forces behind the movie, including, of course, director John Schlesinger, writer Waldo Salt, and actor John Voigt. We also talk about the immense creative force behind Desperate Souls, Nancy Bursky. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Simon Kilmurray and Susan Margolin, the producers of Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy. Simon Kilmurray and Susan Margolin, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you, Ken. I'm really Thank happy you. to be here. Thank you, Ken. It's an honor and uh, a pleasure to be here with you. 
It's wonderful to have you both here and congratulations on being named to the Oscar shortlist for Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy, which on the strength of the title alone, I feel like you guys should get an Oscar nomination. I, I love the title. I'm thrilled that you're both here and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Of course, it is also a conversation that's missing its central voice that of the film's director, the amazing Nancy Bursky, your friend and close collaborator, who died in August of this year at the age of 78. I'm sure that when you found out the film had been named to the short list, you must have experienced a swirl of emotions. And I wondered if you could both share with us what that moment, what that day was like for each of you. I was on the subway and it stopped in a tunnel, as often happens in the subway, with no internet. Somehow or other, miraculously, a phone call from Simon came through and uh, thought, you know, I think this could be good news. But I had no internet, so I <laughs> had to struggle with, is it good news? Is it not? And then finally I did reached Simon and he was able to convey the amazing news. And I was absolutely, I'm getting goosebumps. I was absolutely elated. You know, we wanted this so badly for Nancy. So it was very, it was absolutely bittersweet, but it was also very gratifying. And there's just been this incredible outpouring of love for her since her passing in August. And it's just been these waves of love and admiration for her work. And it's been just so beautiful to observe and to acknowledge. How about for you, Simon, on the other end of that phone call? My thoughts went back to August when we first got the awful news of Nancy's death. And I think we were all really shocked stunned by that. But in the couple of days following Nancy's death, Susan and I spoke to each other because we know that Nancy wanted to do this. And we said, let's try for her and we'll do the best we can. We don't have any resources, but we'll do the best we can for her. So my first thought really went to, to Nancy. I had imagined her drinking a little glass of Prosecco somewhere, you know, cheering. It's really gratifying people took the time to watch the movie, to consider it. And that's what she wanted. She wanted people to watch the movie, to think about it and to have it be part of it. She would have been thrilled. And that's what thrills both of us. I think it's a testament to your collective partnership, the way the two of you have taken the torch and run with it and continue to keep this film on everybody's mind and Nancy and her career and what she's meant. I will say, I, I too, Susan, have seen so much written about Nancy since she passed. And I know the two of you have written about a little bit about her and many, many other people. It's been really moving to see the response. Continuing on about Nancy for a minute, she began her career as a photographer and a photo editor. She was picture editor at the New York Times. Then her career took a turn in 1998 she founded the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival in Durham, North Carolina, and ran that festival for about 10 years. 
Then another turn, she decided she wanted to make films. So she became a filmmaker. And her first documentary was The Loving Story, which came out in 2011. It's a great film about a love story, which is at the center of the landmark Supreme Court case on interracial marriage, which is Loving v. Virginia, is that case. And then she went on to make uh, about five more films. Some of them are about civil rights. Some of them are about very different topics. She made an incredible film called Afternoon of a Fawn, Tana Kill LeClaire, which is about the ballet dancer and the people in her world. And then eventually she made a couple of films about movies, one about Sidney Lumet, and then this film about Midnight Cowboy. So my question is about Nancy and her, the shift in her career. Why do you think Nancy, or what did she tell you about why she wanted to start making films? I, I want to just say one thing. In addition to all of the accomplishments you mentioned, Ken, she was actually starting as a painter and she was an incredibly accomplished painter. So she was a, a multi-talent and for her to become a filmmaker quite late on was just incredible. But Susan, you worked with Nancy on a number of projects, not just this one, so maybe you can jump in. Nancy was a creator by nature. As Simon was saying, she started out as a fine arts painter. I actually have a painting of hers hanging in my house. She had just had an incredibly creative mind. So the transition from painting to photography and photography and curation to curation as a through line at full frame made perfect sense. And then her desire to reestablish herself as an artist in this field, I think, is what drove her to Loving Story, wanting to become a filmmaker at, I believe it was 63, which should be an inspiration to us all. She was just an endlessly curious person, always grappling with complex ideas and complex work. So thank goodness she made that transition. Uh, we all get to benefit from seeing her magnificent work. So the film that she made that you both produced with her is about Midnight Cowboy, and it's about many things. But in the credits of your film, it says it was inspired by the book Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic by Glenn Frankel. This book came out in 2021. I read it when it came out, and it's a really fascinating book about James Leo Herlihy, who wrote the book Midnight Cowboy, which came out in 1965, and then it continues on to follow the story of John Schlesinger and the making of the movie. When I finished the book, I thought to myself, this would make a great documentary. And lo and behold, you all did that. So can you talk about the connection with Glenn Frankel's book and what sparked Nancy to make this film? So Nancy had been talking to Glenn about one of his other books. I think it was a high learn. Because the searchers. The, the searchers. Thank you. Thank you. Around the same time of that conversation, she had, I think, read an article or review about this one. And in that conversation with Glenn said, 
have you talked to anyone about what you're doing with this book and don't do anything until I've had a chance to read it and talk to some other folks about it. And she, I think within a couple of days, immediately called Susan and called me and said, get this book, read it, both read it over the course of a couple of days and got back on the phone with her and said, yes, there's something here. And, and that word inspired by, I think is important. It's not based on the book. But certainly uses the book and a lot of Glenn's work as a kind of jumping off point. And, and Nancy definitely wanted to take it in her own direction. That was really the beginning of the project. It was right when the book was coming out that we jumped on it. And Glenn was also a terrific collaborator on this project. Nancy really liked to work with books as really more of a inspiration then as a basis for a film. The Rape of Reese Taylor was loosely based on a book by Danielle McGuire called At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance. The film A Crime on the Bayou was loosely based on a beautiful book called Deep Delta Justice. And of course, Simon just explained how she came across the shooting Midnight Cowboy. I think it was a very helpful kind of way to initially think about the subject matter. And then she always made it completely her own. These are two very separate but related works of art. I really loved the book. I especially liked the parts actually about James Leo Herlihy and the pre-Stonewall gay culture in this country and in New York City, and just his story as a struggling artist. It's very rich. And then this film goes in its own direction. And as you said, you know, and it's true that Desperate Souls is not a behind the scenes making of kind of a movie. It covers that in part, but it's about something deeper and more expansive than that. For folks who haven't yet seen Desperate Souls, what makes your movie different from those kinds of making of documentaries? One thing that Nancy talked a lot about was the idea of what makes a particular work of art exist and only really able to exist within a specific time and context. And that context is, you mentioned, pre-Stonewall, New York, New York City as a character, male friendship and companionship as a character, the creation of a work of art in an era of Vietnam and Nixon and the, all these things that are going on that becomes almost this crucible. She talked about also about it as kind of being like a kaleidoscope. That was another word that often came up in our conversations. That's what she was interested in exploring. What is it? What are the elements that going into to making a work of art exist within a specific time and place and what makes it last? Midnight Cowboy, I would say for myself, you know, the movie came out in 1969, which is the same year as Easy Rider. So I think it's a really seminal year in the history of American movies and movies, period. And it's definitely an important movie of the 1960s. So when I saw it later than that in the 80s, it's a movie that I was looking forward to seeing. I'd heard about it. I certainly appreciated it, admired it. But I also think I kind of attributed a kind of shorthand to it. You know, John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, there are some iconic lines in the film like, 
you're the only one, Joe Buck, and I'm walking here. Apologies to Dustin Hoffman for that. And of course, you know, the song, everybody's talking. But because of that shorthand, I feel like I didn't, it's not a movie I came back to. And in some ways, a film like Raging Bull or Mean Streets, to take two other examples of movies set in New York City and really of New York, those have kind of achieved a certain status in the canon. And certainly Midnight Cowboy is not a hidden gem by no means. But I was curious, as you're making this film and collaborating with Nancy, in what ways did your perspective on Midnight Cowboy perhaps change or deepen or widen as you got deeper and deeper into this? So for me, upon rewatching Midnight Cowboy, as we were embarking on this series and reading the novel by James Leo Herlihy, I was really just struck by how incredibly relevant it is today. I watch a lot of movies from the 60s and just go back and enjoy some of the classics from that era. A lot of them don't hold up for a number of reasons, but Midnight Cowboy does hold up so magnificently. I think Nancy captures it so beautifully in the film when John Schlesinger talks about how the film is about human commitment. And I think that there's such a need today for that lost connection. We're stuck in our silos. We're so disconnected. We're on social media. We're not talking to each other. We're talking at each other and often telling each other to stop talking. I think the film resonates in an incredibly powerful way. And the other piece of that is what Jennifer Salt said so beautifully that comes home too as we watch Desperate Souls and we rewatch Midnight Cowboy, that we are not necessarily standing on the shoulders of those who preceded us. Look at Roe v. Wade and what's happening there and gay rights and legislative changes, taking away rights. So the film really is so important still today. How about for you, Simon? Was there something in the rewatching of Midnight Cowboy that as you began to work on this film, you found things that maybe you hadn't been so aware of when you first saw the movie? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a fan of the film and, and I first saw it when I was living in Scotland, yeah, when I was a teenager. And it was one of those movies, along with films like Mean Streets and those kind of early 70s and New York classics, late 60s, early 70s, which kind of made me want to explore this kind of strange, wonderful, terrifying landscape of New York City. And, and I think the film exists in, in a really interesting moment, this cultural inflection point. We address this in the film, Hollywood is shifting. The idea of two down and outs, folks who are down on their luck, becoming heroes of a movie, is the beginning of a shift in American cinema, which I think is a really interesting moment. And I think it's one of those turning points in American culture 
that it's essential. There's a, yeah, Lucy Slant talks about this. Would you have mean streets if you didn't have midnight cowboy? I think there's a case to be made that this becomes the link between what went before and what comes after. Just to add to that, it's mind blowing every time I think about Sound of Music winning the Oscar just a few years before Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> that sort of and, says and, it all. Yeah, and John Wayne winning Best Actor for True Grit the same year the Midnight Cowboy wins Best Picture. That's the cultural shift right there. Absolutely. And it's a shift happening simultaneously, things going in opposite directions at the same moment. You mentioned John Wayne and... Just prior to this, he's starring in a movie called The Green Berets, which is a kind of heroic portrait of Vietnam as Desperate Souls makes clear, and many of the insightful interviewees in your movie also make clear, that kind of Green Beret perspective is one that people are really fighting against and upending and are just not accepting anymore. There's a great quote from... Charles Kaiser, who says, Vietnam marked the defeat of conventional wisdom, which I thought was an incredible quote. Nancy spends one of the revelations to me about Desperate Souls is how much time and attention she devotes to Vietnam in the movie. The film references other political and social movements of the time, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, gay liberation, certainly. But I would say Vietnam holds a special place in this movie. It really is the touchstone that she keeps coming back to, and it's a visual reference point. Can you talk more about why Vietnam was so resonant for Nancy as she was making this film? I think making a film about this era, it's impossible not to deal with Vietnam. It, it is the kind of the foundational shift the elephant in the room it's everywhere it's being dealt with in the culture as we talk about and even though films weren't being made about vietnam necessarily then they're metaphorically in these other movies it's defining for that generation you can't talk about these years without acknowledging and dealing with this massive catastrophe that is going on that goes on to shift american culture, American politics, American journalism. It's really uh, a pivotal moment in this country's history, particularly at the time, and it's gone on to influence everything since. I was also thinking Nancy was born in 1945, so she would have been in her early 20s when Vietnam was becoming the critical catastrophe that you talked about, Simon. And I couldn't help but think that those images were seared in her brain. That image, which she uses a couple of times of two in this old one reaching out to the other, it's almost like a Pieta. Yes, I think you're right, Ken. She saw parallels in that image of Joe Bach and Ratson's relationship, of the wounded still reaching out to each other for support and companionship, of compassion. And I think you're right in terms of Nancy with coming of age at that moment, it's seared in her own experience. She saw those parallels very strongly. Yeah. Nancy was fascinated with the idea of what she called the moment, the moment in which a work of art is created. 
and born into and created out of. Absolutely, Vietnam was, you know, a defining factor in the moment of 1969 and, and the late 60s. That photo that Simon is talking about at the end of the film was one of her favorite photos. She talked about it quite often. It's indicative of a photo that just speaks a thousand words. It's so powerful in the messages that it conveys. And she, as a photo editor for 14 years, understood that better than the rest of us. She certainly did. Another moment that I would talk about is in terms of film history, as Desperate Souls shows, the context here is one in which we've got Italian neorealism after World War II. We have the French New Wave. We have British kitchen sink dramas, followed by the British New Wave. All of these things are happening. That's the context in which John Schlesinger emerges as a bright new force in British cinema. He takes those movements and he also combines them, I think, with his background as a documentary filmmaker, making films for the BBC. And he comes up with this kind of hybrid approach, which you see in Midnight Cowboy, that just seems incredibly fresh and really had never been done, as far as I know, in terms of mainstream American cinema up to that point. So in one sense, the film is kind of evolutionary, but it also seems revolutionary. How would you place John Schlesinger as an artist and this film in that kind of evolutionary, revolutionary context? You're hitting on all the right points, Ken. I think for me, the essential one is his background as a documentary filmmaker. I think you sense that through Adam Hollander's incredible cinematography and use of New York City as a character, use of location as a character. And that to me is one of the elements that makes this revolutionary. It feels documentary. It doesn't feel staged. It feels documentary to me. And that kind of fiction film using that language, I think is really interesting. And I can't think of many things that came before the use that language, seen a lot of stuff since, but I think it was pretty special in that approach. Yeah. To add to that, his bringing in of Warhol and the factory is just indicative of how daring he was. He was willing to take chances and to show the ways in which the underground cinema was changing the way we experience film. And th this was, as we know, a mainstream Hollywood film with a big budget, as Jennifer Salt says, and real movie stars. I think he was an incredible maverick. And then if you watch Sunday Bloody Sunday, which he did after Midnight Cowboy, that film is so far ahead of its time. It's really, it's astonishing. He was a tremendous artist. Of course, the other context we're dealing with here is one in which society is virulently anti-gay. And John Schlesinger is gay, James Leo Hurley is gay, but they can't be openly gay and expect to be able to make a living, a career as artists. Certainly, John Schlesinger, as a filmmaker working within whatever's left of the Hollywood studio system, which at this point is more of a distribution system and financing system, 
But nonetheless, it's unthinkable to think he could be out as a filmmaker at this time. And of course, the film itself deals with gay sex, same-sex longing, and what were considered these transgressive acts in this context of the time. These are all a huge part of the movie. But Herlihy and Schlesinger both said, this is not a gay novel, this is not a gay movie. What I would like to hear is just what kind of discussions you all had creatively about how to place Midnight Cowboy within the context of queer cinema and this intimate but not sexual relationship between Joe Buck and Ratso Rizzo. Probably a, a doctoral thesis in there for somebody, and I'm sure it's been done, but nonetheless, <laughs> we'll give you each a crack at that. It's an interesting question because you're right. It's not a gay movie per se, but obviously there are scenes and elements and experiences that are portrayed in the movie which deal with that. The relationship between Joe and Ratso is never explicitly gay, but there is a different kind of male relationship that we're used to seeing explored on, in cinema. There's a closeness, a compassion, a caring. And this was also a time, we talk about this in the film, where it was illegal. It was a criminal offense. John Schlesinger grew up in the UK, in England, where it was a criminal offense. It was a criminal offense in the US. So those were all things that we talked about and are very much part of both Midnight Cowboy, but also very much part of Nancy's interest in exploring what a different kind of relationship Fletchinger was trying to explore here. And of course, Susan mentioned in, in Sunday Bloody Sunday, he then goes on to make a film which deals with some of those themes in a much more explicit fashion. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been so interesting to me, you know, taking the film out into the world to film festivals and theatrical screenings. And invariably, someone will come up to me with tears in their eyes saying, this film changed my life. This film made me realize that I was not, that it wasn't a sickness that I was experiencing, that I was okay. Uh, in some cases, people have said to me that the film gave them license to come out to their family and friends. As much as the film is about human commitment and this friendship, platonic seemingly, it spoke loud and clear to a generation and continues to. Yeah, I, I rewatched The Night Cowboy a couple days ago, and I will say I was surprised by how gay it does seem. I was expecting, you know, I read those quotes from Schlesinger and Hurley, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's, it really is this film about male friendship. And I'm like, sure, there's that moment when it, it's around the party at the factory. On the stairs. On the stairs. And yeah. it's just unmistakable. Ratso pulls himself closer, grabs Joe Buck mm -hmm. around the waist and pulls him closer, and you look at his face, and it's like, okay, this is love. <laughs> Such a yeah. beautiful scene. It really is. I want to talk about John Voigt. I think he's really wonderful in your film, and he's probably been asked about this movie many, many times, but I still felt like the stories he tells and the way he tells them are done with such sincerity that it doesn't matter if he's told it before. You really 
believe what he's saying, and it's very meaningful. You also see his screen test, and that just blew me away because it seems that right out of the gate, he understands Joe Buck, he has his own take on this character, and it's a remarkable, he knows what he can do with this part, and then he pulls it off. He's a young actor. I just came away with from your movie and then rewatching Midnight Cowboy just with immense admiration for John Voight as an actor. I don't know if there's anything you can share about what he was like as an interviewee, but <laughs> I would love to hear yeah. a little bit about John Voight. Yeah. I was there for that interview in LA. We had John booked for an hour or two and he, we ended up spending the better part of a day with him. He was incredibly generous, incredibly passionate about this movie and what it meant to and still means to him as an artist and was just so immensely, I think immensely proud of this work. He did bring a unique take on the Jobot character. Jennifer Salt talks about that also in the movie, in the hands of another actor, you wouldn't have this kind of goofy naivete that John so beautifully portrays, but with real love and affection. So John was just incredibly generous and full of kind of wonderful stories. I wish we had more time to include many more of them, but it was pretty fantastic. You mentioned Jennifer Salt and she says some really insightful things as well. She's, of course, the daughter of Waldo Salt, who wrote the adapted screenplay. She's also in Midnight Cowboy. I'm not sure if it's her or someone else who talks about the role of outsiders. Her father, the great scriptwriter Waldo Salt, he was blacklisted for his ties to the Communist Party and for refusing to kowtow to the House on american Activities Committee. We've talked about Schlesinger and Herlihy, they're clearly outsiders in many ways. And even, you know, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight are outsiders because they're new actors, they're young actors, they're trying to change Hollywood by their approach to acting, coming out of the Stanislavski School of Acting. How important is this lens of outsiders looking in to our understanding of Midnight Cowboy and Desperate Souls? What a great question. I think that John Schlesinger's view of these characters and this culture in New York is so specifically an outsider's view. I think that part of the genius of the film is that he sees things that people who are in the moment won't and wouldn't be able to see. His powers of observation, his capturing of the language and the nuances of being a squatter in Times Square. He has such an exquisite ability to bring this to life. We see that in other films of his as well, but I think none so poignantly as in Midnight Cowboy. Hurley, he was also very much an outsider, very much connected to gay culture. And that outsider art comes through so strongly in the novel. He's opening us up to a world that he's a part of that few of us have seen before. And that that's true of the film as well. If nothing else, hopefully this podcast will get people to watch Midnight Cowboy, maybe even read the novel. 
and read Glenn Frankel's book and, of course, see Desperate Souls. I think you need to do as many of those things as you can. You owe it to yourself. As we wrap up here, I wanted to bring Nancy back into this and just say, if Nancy were listening into this conversation and she said the words, be sure to mention this blank, she was speaking into both of your ears, what would she be telling you to make sure you mention? Simon, I'll let you go first. Oh, gosh, Cam, that's a really tough one. I'm not sure I can answer that question in quite the way that you put. I feel incredibly inadequate standing in for Nancy. I think that's been part of the challenge here because Nancy had a passion and was able to express that passion with such infectious enthusiasm and with joy and with an open heart, which I can barely, you know, summon in, in comparison. One of the challenges of, of having to represent Nancy is I always feel I'm doing it inadequately because I can't beat her. <laughs> and she was just so special. But she was an incredibly generous collaborator. And she would always talk about our movie, not her movie. So I, I can only do my best to try and live up to what I think she would have expected us. I know I will somehow fall short. How about you, Susan? What would Nancy be whispering in your ear, tugging on your shirt? Hey, be sure to mention this. Don't forget to say that. She's telling me to talk about Tanny, which is a narrative version of the film Afternoon of a Fawn that she wrote a, such a beautiful script for and plan to make in the coming couple of years. We hope to be able to figure out a way to get that made in her honor. And I think she would love that. Well, thank you for mentioning that, because I think it does show that even though Nancy is gone, her presence remains and the forward momentum of what she put into motion will continue. Thank you for your collaboration with Nancy and congratulations on the shortlist and thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Ken. We like to ask our guests if you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think maybe doesn't get the attention that it deserves. I am going to go with Judith Helfand's Love and Stuff, which came out during the pandemic. Just a beautiful, heart-rending, courageous film about love and family and loss and grieving. And, and also is extremely funny. I'm going to pick a, a, a recent one, which was actually Ireland's submission for international feature this year, and also in the documentary category. It's called In the Shadow of Beirut by um, Stephen Jared Kelly. And he is a co-director on it, whose name I am blanking on. And it follows four families in Beirut, and they are all multi-generational families of Palestinian and Syrian refugees. And the thing about refugees in Lebanon is they can't get papers to work. It's just absolutely impossible. And even if they were born there, they can't get papers to work. It follows the struggles of these four families. It sounds terribly bleak and certainly their circumstances are incredibly challenging, but it's a beautifully 
rendered humane, sometimes funny, extremely touching and beautifully filmed picture cinema. Mm-hmm.